Good afternoon, I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. Thank you all for coming today and welcome to our March Conservative Women's Network. A special thank you as well to Bridget Wagner, vice president of the Heritage Foundation and we've had a wonderful partnership now for, do you know how many years? A long time. 18 years, once a month. Sometimes we skip August. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm delighted to introduce today's Conservative Women's Network speaker, Molly Hemingway. March is Women's History Month, but you'd be hard pressed to find a conservative woman celebrated in the media or on a college campus for her accomplishments. We're grateful to Molly for sharing some of the success stories of conservative women and why they are so important for our nation. Molly is senior editor at The Federalist, a great website about politics and culture. If you don't look at it every day, you should. Previously, she was morning editor at the conservative website Ricochet and managing editor of GetReligion.org, which analyzes how the mainstream media covers religion. And one of my favorite articles you ever did, I think when you were there, was about the Anglican Church, which is my church now, and how the Episcopal Church uh, was interacting with that. I learned things in your articles that I never knew before. It's excellent. She's a longtime journalist. She wrote a regular column for Christianity Today, and her works appeared in the Wall Street Journal, that's where that article was, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. She makes frequent appearances on Fox News. You look great on Fox News. Once you started getting on Fox News. Yeah, you are, you are, you know, TV, that does it. She's a 2014 recipient of the Claremont Institute Lincoln Fellowship, and in 2004, she was awarded a Phillips Foundation Fellowship to analyze the changing nature of American civil religion. Prior to becoming a religion journalist full-time, she was a reporter for Federal Times, covering issues related to the government, uh, to government waste and federal workers. She did a wonderful article just this morning in The Federalist about the spying scandal that's ongoing with some really excellent insights. This is on the Federalist website. She's originally from Castle Rock, Colorado, graduated from the University of Colorado with a BA in economics. She's married to journalist Mark Hemingway. They have two children. And in her spare time, which isn't much, she has a massive, impressive vinyl record collection, and she plays the records, right? Please join me in welcoming Molly Hemingway. Okay, great. Thanks for being here, ladies and the two gentlemen. No, three of you. Okay, great. You're not really supposed to be here, but it's totally okay, and we are not going. I'm joking. I'm joking. It's totally great. Um, but yeah, so uh, just have a, a little bit of um, stuff I wanted to talk about, about being conservative female in America, and then I'm hoping you guys have some questions. Um, but we're talking about why conservative women leaders are important for America, but it's actually just important for conservative women to have a role in the United States. And I'm, I'm in media, and so I pay particular attention to the portrayal of women throughout media. And it just seems that whether it's Hollywood, journalism, all of our celebrity, you know, outside of Hollywood, pop starlets or whatnot, there is this idea of what it means to be a woman that does not actually reflect any of the women I know or that I interact with on a daily basis. And it's very weird to have women be such a big part of the conversation, but have it not match the reality that I and so many of the people I know uh, actually have. And so um, <clears throat> there's something in particular about the news media 
that creates problems here. And I think it actually goes back, there's some structural issues that go back into this, where a lot of women who have positions of leadership in the media come from a certain time and place where the values that they hold are not very diverse, and it's very hard for women who don't share their same sort of limited groupthink on liberal ideology to rise in a lot of media positions. And so this is reflected in so much of the media coverage. Whenever there's an issue dealing with women, they don't have a lot of curiosity or understanding of how different women might understand a given issue, and it really causes tremendous problems. Um, and, you know, you, you know this as well as I do. But I was just thinking about how, uh, like a couple weeks ago, Brawny came out with a thing for Women's History Month where they put a woman as, a bra as the Brawny man. Uh, so not a man on the paper towel holder, you know, it's a woman. And everyone in the media really celebrated this. They thought this was a great thing, that, the, you know, we're upending gender roles and whatnot. And no one really thought, like, again, you didn't get a lot of diversity of thought about this, about whether it's really that groundbreaking to have women in kitchen work, you know? Like, <laughs> is this really something that really is that meaningful, um, like, household cleaning products or something we actually know pretty well? And it's not that exciting, you know, to have a woman on the package instead of the amazing brawny man. Uh, and so few women, and actually, you know, so few men, but really also so few women identify as feminist. And this is just not something that you get from media coverage. Uh, you, would, you would assume the assumptions that are placed into media coverage of women's issues is that, of course, everyone's a feminist. You looked at the, um, not just the Women's March, but that take the day off of work protest movement, which was a great, I love that. I mean, I wish every protest movement could be like, so we're taking the day off of work, and it's for a really important cause. And it's like, oh, I could totally get on board with this. But um, like polls show, you know, major, major polls show that just a very small percentage of people actually identify as feminist. In the media coverage, they say, oh, feminism is just this belief that men and women are equal, and who could be opposed to that? And it's like, well, yeah, if that's what it, if that's what it meant, nobody would be opposed to that, but that's not what it means in practice. Um, I think back, it was a couple years ago, there was a man who landed a, a rocket on a comet. Like he, he figured this out, how to land an actual like rocket on a comet hurtling through space. And this is an amazing accomplishment, right? Like something no human has ever done before. And at, at, when it happened, they go into his lab and he's like, so I landed a rocket on a comet and they're like, yeah, yeah, but your shirt is problematic. And he had worn a shirt that his friend, a female friend, had made for him that had like, it was very artistic, but like pinups on it. And so the news of the day became that he was a misogynist and that that was like the big takeaway that we should all be you know, learning from this, this moment. Um, or there's also the Nobel laureate, Tim Hunt, who was speaking actually like on the topic of of sex in the workplace or whatnot. And he was, he gave very nuanced, balanced remarks and also made some kind of joke about the challenges of working in a mixed sex workplace or whatnot. And someone took these comments out of context and ran with them. And it became this international incident where he ended up losing his job. And it was all like not even a real thing that had happened. It was, you know, you can, you can quote someone and make them appear to be saying something differently than what they are. And that's exactly what happened. Um, or today, yesterday, Cosmopolitan Magazine, that great 
magazine that does so much for women ran a legit story. I think it's legit. I'm more, do you find this when you're reading things and you say, I think it's legit, but it might be satire, and you read it and you reread it and you're like, I don't know, I really don't know. It's either real feminist thought or satire. But it was about how um, men should not bring their sexual partner to orgasm if they take pleasure. It, meaning, so if men feel a sense of accomplishment about bringing their sexual partner to orgasm, that's a problem. Way to help out women, Cosmo magazine. Like, really, no, there's no problem here. There's no problem in search of a solution. Um, but that, this is kind of like what's happening in Cosmo. The same author has routinely talked about like the problems with mutually satisfying sex. Again, like why you would let your children read this magazine is beyond me. But, um, and then a few years ago, there was also the, this big push, do you remember, to ban the term bully? No, bossy. Ban the term bossy. And it was this idea that bossy, so all these feminists came forward and said, it's really time to ban the word bossy. Bossy is a word, according to them, that was only used against women, which totally doesn't match with my experience as a child, and that it makes women feel bad for being aggressive or whatnot, so we should just ban the word. And I just couldn't get enough out of how, and this was treated very seriously by everyone in the media. They thought this was a very good idea to ban the word bossy. So like a bunch of really wealthy, elite, beautiful women like Beyonce and Sheryl Sandberg, like the, the alpha females, got together and all agreed that you all can't use a word. And I'm thinking like, what could be bossier than this? You know, coming together and saying, you are really not supposed to use that word. But that was not how it was portrayed in the, in the media at all. It was celebrated and treated as like a very legitimate, serious issue. And this is, to, to go on a tangent here for a second, this is also a good example of how leadership can be kind of treated as more important than other roles too. Like sometimes people really, I have, I have children, sometimes the older child really does bully the younger child. And you, got, you have to have words for this. You know, it's not the end of the world if someone says to you, hey, you're being kind of bossy, could you back off? That's okay, it's not, you know, it, you need to raise children who are strong enough to understand that getting a little pushback on inappropriate behavior is not just not bad, but actually good, and it helps you form relationships and, and be better at it. Um, on which note, so much of what we get in media about how to be a woman, it seems that a lot of the feminist messaging is about denigrating those things that make us different from men and to basically turn us into people who are like men. So banning this term bossy. There was also a push to ban the, the use of the word sorry on the theory that women apologize too much. And it is true that sometimes people apologize too much and sometimes probably, you know, it's, predominantly women who apologize too much. This can be an, a crutch or you can overuse this word or this approach. It's also true that the big problem in the world today is not that people are not apologizing enough. You know, We have a world where people are very hostile to each other, don't put the best construction on what other people are doing, and they don't think about how their actions affect other people. Women are really good at understanding the importance of relationships and the ties that bind and making sure that people do have healthy interaction with each other and that people aren't offended or, you know, these things. These are good things. These aren't bad things. And yet we're always treated by this sort of groupthink in the media to view it that these things that do make us different from men are to be, to be squashed and, and, and removed. 
Um, and also, I'll just point out the, the war on women messaging in general, which we thankfully, oddly, didn't have quite so much of in this last election cycle, but has been a staple of previous election cycles, where people in newsrooms all gathered assume that if you're a woman, if you have this certain biology, that you all share the exact same ideas about how to handle economics or, um, you know, or social issues, as if just the fact of your biology would dictate what your viewpoint is on these things. It's very frustrating. Um, and particularly in how they cover abortion, which is the greatest human crisis, human rights crisis of our time, and is pretty much completely ignored or manipulated in the media to uh, present it as something other than what it is. So at The Federalist, which we uh, have been around for three and a half years or so, and did I see Madeline here? Sorry, Madeline, great, who's also here with us at the Federalist. Um, we started this intentionally with an idea, and we are a right-of-center publication. We host debates on libertarian and conservative thought. And we knew when we started that most political publications are, of, um, are not well-read by women. That's true whether it's a liberal publication or a conservative publication. The vast majority of people who read political publications are male. Conversely, women's publications don't really tend to have the type of viewpoint that many women we know are interested in. So we started out intentionally having female staff. We're probably the only publication of our kind that has a majority female staff. And we have a ton of female writers. We have hundreds of female writers, and we have since the very beginning. And you look at, you know, again, whether it's a liberal publication or a conservative publication, you open up that magazine and you look down the bylines, and frequently it's just man after man after man after man, which is fine, but it's nice to have women's voices put out there as well. And, and um, one of the things I get a kick out of is we have all these women from all over the country writing these amazing, beautiful pieces about everything from education policy to being a mother to, you know, what they think of BoJack Horseman or whatnot. You know, it's culture, politics, policy, family life, everything. And these women are highly educated frequently raising their children in the home. And they'll say something, and we'll, we'll get this piece, and we'll think, this is a really beautifully written piece. This is great. It is kind of obvious. You know, it's kind of a, like they're making a point that seems like what you would be talking about with your friends or whatnot. And we'll publish it, and we'll just get reams of thank you notes from people saying, just thank you for saying what I have been wanting someone in the media to say for so long. You know, you kind of do the uh, emperor has no clothes, like, hey, that thing everybody in the media is pushing is silly. And people say, thank you for saying that. We have been waiting for someone for someone to do that. Um, but our, our, we have female leadership at our publication. We have all these female writers. We don't really get credit for it. And I was thinking about that in relation to um, Kellyanne Conway, who's listed in, in uh, what, what we were going to talk about today. Here you have a woman, the first woman to successfully run a presidential campaign and do, do it under unbelievably difficult circumstances. When you look at it from any direction, the candidate, <laughs> the amount of money she had to work with, the strategy, the conflicting strategy, the ragtag group of people that were, that were involved and whatnot, and she had a vision, she saw that vision through, you know that if a woman had run a successful Hillary Clinton campaign, you know that person would have received nothing but accolades, that everything she did that anyone had a problem with would have been smoothed over or treated in the most magnanimous way possible. This is not what you get when you're a conservative 
woman. And this is, you know, no, she's not unique. Kellyanne Conway is not unique in what has happened to her. Um, she is a professional who's been working in this town for decades and has done good work for decades and has, has taken women under her wing for so long and done it without desire for credit or anything. And it's kind of impressive for those of us who have known her for a long time to see how much she has accomplished. But this is just the story of what it means to be, in, in, just what it means to be a conservative woman. So <laughs> kind of would say about that, this is just what you have to accept. But you also have to go out and do good work and not worry about the fact that the most of the world will be hostile. And the good news is, there is a total implosion of media control that is, I don't, I think you all are mostly too young to know how awesome this is, but it used to be that if the media decided that, that something would be the narrative, that you didn't really have many means to fight it. And now you can fight it in every which way possible, and I encourage you to do that. Um, and you should speak up, whether again, you are in a position of leadership, or whether it's just in your day-to-day -day life, whether it's just you on social media, which is an amazing platform to have. You have to have the courage of your convictions to actually speak out against all the falsehoods you hear, particularly on, again, the important issues, such as um, the destruction of life in the womb. You know, things that really matter, you have to be courageous, live out your values. Whether or not the world is telling you that you're wrong, um, you know that you have good things going. I actually had been talking to my publisher, who is a great guy, who understands the significance of having women in positions of leadership and how it's helpful to women and those they care about. And he was telling me that he thought it was remarkable how much the depiction of, or how much the existence of conservative women is at odds with the depictions of women in the media and how those depictions say we should behave and think. And that the real question, and I hadn't thought about this until he said it, the real question that stumps the media right now, well, everything stumps the media right now, but um, post-election, that was a huge shock for everybody in mainstream media. They really did not understand the country that they were covering. But even after the election, when there's been just the tiniest bit of reflection from all of these people, they're kind of grasping a little bit about the like white working class male vote but they haven't even begun to deal with how it is that women voted for Donald Trump. I mean, that's just an issue they are not tackling at all. And it's kind of interesting that we are here many months out and they're still in whatever stage of grief they're working through, but they, they haven't even like tried to get to that part. Um, you know, conservative women have values, we have priorities, we have things that we care about in terms of policymaking and the culture at large. The media only understand women insofar as like basically what the media want women to be are people with an empty uterus or something close to that. And that is about all that they understand about political priorities of women and everything is built around that. And so you will notice that they have a particular problem with women who are both successful and fertile. And this is something that you see going, going back, you know, from Margaret Thatcher, Sarah Palin, Kellyanne Conway. It just, they don't quite understand how it could be that you could have amazing amount of career success and still prioritize your family, that you could be on your Blackberry with your baby on your knee, that this would not be a problem. And in fact, this is kind of what conservative women seek and value. And that they, whether that's you know paid professional work or volunteer work, serving people in your church and community, this whole idea that you would be balancing all these different things and finding fulfillment in them is, very difficult for our current media 
establishment to grok. Um, he shared with me a Tocqueville quote, which is a little bit long, but so good, so I hope you don't mind if I, if I read it, because it's, to me, a great depiction of being a conservative woman and why it's so important for us to fight for the values that we believe in, because this actually relates to the American ideal. Tocqueville writes, long before an American girl arrives at the marriageable age, her emancipation from maternal control begins. She has scarcely ceased to be a child when she already thinks for herself speaks with freedom, and acts on her own impulse. The great scene of the world is constantly open to her view, far from seeking to conceal it from her. It is every day disclosed more completely that she is taught to survey it with a firm and calm gaze. Thus the vices and dangers of society are early revealed to her as she sees them clearly. She views them without illusion and braves them without fear, for she is full of reliance on her own strength and her confidence seems to be shared by all around her. An American girl scarcely ever displays that virginal softness in the midst of young desires, or that innocent and ingenious grace which usually attend the European woman in the transition from girlhood to youth. It is rare that an American woman at any age displays childish timidity or ignorance. Like the young women Europe, she seeks to please, but she knows precisely the cost of pleasing. If she does not abandon herself to evil, at least she knows that it exists, and she is remarkable rather for purity of manners than for chastity of mind. I have been frequently surprised and almost frightened at the singular address and happy boldness with which young women in America contrive to manage their thoughts and their language amid all the differences of free conversation. A philosopher would have stumbled at every step along the narrow path which they trod without accident and without effort. It is easy, indeed, to perceive that even amid the independence of early youth, an American woman is always mistress of herself. She indulges in all permitted pleasures without yielding herself up to any of them, and her reason never allows the reins of self-guidance to drop, though she may often be seen to let them flap. It's awesome. Possibly not in too much existence anymore, but awesome to think that that's <clears throat> what American women were known for in the previous years. Okay, that's actually all I have uh, to say, but I hope you have some questions, and I'm happy to uh, talk about what you would like. We have a uh, microphone. Yes, if you would uh, raise your hand, Molly, I'll let you call on people. If you would give your name and your affiliation, please. Darn, I was thinking I could drone on for a little <laughs> bit longer. I'll save you from droning with my own droning. Um, I'm Rachel, I'm with Heritage. Um, I'm wondering if you can pinpoint sort of where it was that we lost that narrative. Because I think, um, you know, people talk about, you know, evangelicals and I think conservative women sort of get lumped into that category sometimes, um, coming out into the political force after Roe in 73. But we've never seemed to break that mainstream narrative on what a woman should be, you know, whether or not it's okay to have differing opinions from the mainstream. And so I'm wondering if what your thoughts are on sort of where that shift took place from, you know, multiple opinions in the public square on a women's role to, you know, you better be out there wearing a pink hat or you're not you know, worthy of a discourse in the debate? It's such a complicated, it's a great question, but such a complicated answer that I don't even know quite where to begin. But I do think that, there, that this all tracks to the rise of progressivism in general, and that there is a fight against human nature that is inherent in progressivism. This idea that you can conquer your nature and that that would be a good thing um, to, that you can sort of evolve past the human condition that is 
that is you know, sown throughout progressive thought. And feminism grocks completely with this, with this idea that your biology or what makes you um, distinct as a woman is a problem that needs to be overcome and that you can use any technological, you can and should use any technological means at your disposal, including you know, violence or sterilization or whatnot to, um, to sort of try and make you not female or not distinguishable from man. And this is so cooked into the philosophy that it pervades how we're allowed to talk about women or whatnot. And such, so much of feminism arose at a time with true injustice for women that it was easy to adopt some of this thinking without realizing how it might also be problematic. Uh, we joke at the Federalists that, so you know National Review has this saying, um, standing athwart history, yelling stop. So we joke that ours is standing athwart history saying boys and girls are different. No, it really is an important point that men and women are different, that this is a gift, that we are, this is not a problem, that this, is, this has, um, and that we work together well. Um, and that is a narrative that's very different from what you hear elsewhere, but it's one that has such, the, the other one has such a lengthy history, and it has been bolstered through major, you know, things, anything from, you know, the pill or whatnot, which really adds a lot of um, easiness to the attempt to keep your uterus empty or whatnot. Um, these, these things have significant effect on people and how we think. And I think conservatives also have adopted a lot of it without thinking through the problems. And they have engaged in you know, educational systems that really almost brainwash and put these ideas in deep. And so it's important to fight against them. Yes, sir. <laughs> thank you. Uh, a lot of to enter in here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, thank you for allowing me to ask a question. I'm 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 no, really a woman. I really <laughs> am joking, so I hope that comes through. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. But yeah, so my question is, uh, where do you see um, the feminist movement moving on the transgenderism issue? Uh, because, uh, again, the media seems to present, like, acceptance of it as mainstream, but I know there's a lot of feminists, even really far-left radical feminists, who see this as an insult to womanhood. So do you see them moving towards more acceptance, more rejection? Or, thank yes. You. That is another great question and one, thing, one of the things I find so fascinating, including, you know, like I mentioned, we are a libertarian conservative publication, but we have published some of these radical feminists who have serious problems with transgender activism because of what it does to the feminist movement. Um, this idea that if you feel as if you're a woman, whether or not you've actually, you know, ever had your first period has no relationship to whether you can call yourself a woman or accrue all the benefits of being a woman or the, um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's crazy making. And I don't think people have really thought through the implications of transgender ideology in a way that is helpful. And once again, you know, I mentioned like with feminism, so much of it was able to be accomplished in part by, um, responding to legitimate grievances and problems. You know, we are a country that cares deeply about not hurting people, that people should be free to live as they want to live. And so using sort of this politeness and good graces of people, you can actually put something out into the discourse that is very damaging. The, um, the guidance that the Obama administration put out regarding Title IX, which is, you know, 
which is a law that I do not support in any way. But the idea that you could now say that sex is a matter of the heart or the mind and not objective reality just destroys so much legal precedent about, you know, uh, on issues guiding how we handle uh, division between the sexes and the differences between the sexes. And I, I actually think everybody was probably pretty happy that Trump pulled that guidance because it created such legal chaos and it didn't make any sense. And it would not have been able to sort of see its way through to the end of day in any meaningful uh, way. At the same time, there's so much public pressure. And like you know, like I thought it was fascinating that journalists all decided that you should refer to a male with female pronouns if the male would like to be written about that way, if you perceive that. I mean, that is really interesting that these people who are very concerned about fact-checking and truth and objective reality would so willingly fall into that without thinking through whether that might lead down, a, you know, again, out of politeness, which is certainly an admirable virtue, but whether that would lead down to a road that creates all sorts of problems. Um, or that, you know, on the one hand, they will say, we care about science and reality. We are in the reality-based community, and you people don't care about science. And by the way, we're now going to call this person the, a different sex than they are because of feelings. I mean, this is chaotic and whatnot. So I think the interesting battles actually are in the feminist movement on this issue because, better for better or for worse, nobody has thought through sexual distinctions quite like feminists have, and a lot of transgender ideology is in conflict with certain lines of thought there. So it'll be interesting to watch. But more than that, more than like fringe feminists or a very small percentage of the population or radical leftists trying to push this change, I think it would be good for the rest of the world to kind of think through whether sexual distinctions are good and whether we want to preserve this understanding of sexual distinctions. Also how to deal with the very real and growing issue of gender dysmorphia and what we have maybe done as a culture to promote these ideas and, and whatnot. These are all challenging issues. When you do believe that, when you believe you were born into the wrong body, when you believe that in your heart you are a different sex than you are. You can do that at five. You don't have to be majority. Well, but I mean, there really is a legitimate problem, and there are treatments for it. And the treat here's the thing: treatment for this issue is very difficult, and it usually requires family counseling. I mean, usually there's a reason for someone thinking this. It could be fear or hope, um, deep-seated, related to trauma. And you do need to treat the whole family. You need to treat this as a very serious issue. When you're in a culture where you are sending nothing but confused messages about being a woman or being a man, or you are rewarding victimhood or whatnot, like all the sort of confusing things we do, you can make it sort of seem less of a bad thing to go down this road. And you don't tell people all of the problems that are associated with um, living as someone of the opposite sex than you are. Not to mention just the overall issue of, you know, we're not, we're not valuing people for being who they are, for being male or female, and we're sowing, we're reaping the results of that. Hi, I'm Madeline at The Federalist, and... I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> so you mentioned that um, most women don't identify as feminists. And one point that I've seen you write about or just mention a little bit that I was wondered if you could expand on a little bit is this idea that the women who do feel the need to identify as feminist maybe haven't been treated 
as well, but or don't have good men in their life or have not been treated well by men in their life. And so they feel the need to protest and, and lash out or write uh, awful Cosmo articles about their sex life about the men in their life. And so I was just wondering if you could speak to maybe what men and women could do to, um, what it would look like if men and women would just treat each other better. For some reason this reminds me that I once had, so I'm a little outspoken in public life and you get a little pushback for that sometimes. I had this one person who was like a legitimate writer, but he really hated me and would send all sorts of nasty notes to me and do it publicly. And this really wise woman just dropped me a line. She's like, just thought you should know. I think his wife has cancer. And I was like, oh, so he's mad at me because he can't be mad about how bad his life is. And I was like, so glad she told me that. And I am going to pray for this person. Every time he calls me, you know, a bad word or whatever, I'm just going to pray for him. And like two years later, someone else was being mean to me on Twitter. This same woman was like, just thought you should know, I think maybe his wife has cancer. And I was like, oh, you're just telling me that, so I'm nicer. Like, <laughs> like they don't, their wives don't have cancer. You're just trying to make me be a better Christian. It was a great, um, it was a great trick. But, because, <laughs> you know, you don't know what people's problems are. But sometimes when people are acting out negatively, or when they are being really horrible, not to justify that behavior, but sometimes it comes from a place of, you don't know what they're dealing with is basically the, the issue. And I do have to think, I, I mean, like, I love men. I love being a woman, and I love men. Part of that is because I have a really wonderful father. I have a brother who is so great. Just talked to him on my way over here. I, you know, I talked to him all the time. He was just like the world's perfect brother. I have an amazing husband. I have really good male friends. I think part of the reason why I have such a positive view of relationship between the sexes is because whenever there was a problem with a man, you know, my dad would come down and take care of it. And that, so he, I saw that you can be aggressive and yet this is also um, a way to protect people. So I have such healthy views of it because I was given these good men. Not everybody has that in their life. And I think it's important that when we talk about these things that, um, you know, that, that we understand that not everybody has had the same good experiences and that sometimes people have really negative views about men because they have had bad relationships. You see it also with men on the internet or whatnot who are so hurt by women that they lash out and they say horrible things. Again, this does not justify this behavior, but the best cure for improved relationship between the sexes is not to yell at feminists or men, men's rights activists, but really to just have better relationship between the sexes. And this is something that conservative women, I think, excel at and I hope you guys will too, and just because so many of you are younger, I hope you're thinking about how the best defense for, uh, for fixing the country or for having a good, happy life is to get married, to have children, and do a good job in your marriage, and do a good job raising your children. These are the things that really bring value and meaning to your life. So much, um, you know, just as you know, because you are a product of a mom and a dad, and that your very existence of life is because of the goodness of that. Um, and so as we do good work and as we have good careers, we also, you know, should have good other things going on. And whether or not that's marriage or family, you know, family, maybe we don't have that. But we certainly have opportunities to serve each other and to just have good relationships in our community, our churches, our neighborhoods and whatnot. Hi, Jean Barry from Heritage. I wonder if you have any thoughts on what might be termed uh, 
um, an inaccurate or misplaced focus of the feminists on all the terrible things that are going on here in the United States and the Western world with uh, the way women are treated and almost no attention at all given to what's really going on with women being sold into slavery and all sorts of horrible things by ISIS and, and all those people. Yes, it's an interesting thing, particularly like the pettier the issue is in this country, you think, well, shouldn't you be a little more worried about enslavement of women or um, just like such sheer bad treatment of not letting women drive in this country or getting um, you know, killed for converting from one faith to another? Those are certainly much more significant issues, and I think that's a very legitimate criticism. At the same time, I actually think there is something of a conservative principle of being more concerned about your near neighbor than your far neighbor. And um, Aquinas writes about this extensively, uh, how charity is to be understood. I think of it, in, interestingly enough, in terms of like the, um, the refugee debate. And people say, well, if you're a good person, you will bring in every refugee that needs, to, that needs help. At the same time, your responsibilities are mixed. You have responsibility to care for your near neighbor, your own family, economically, in terms of security and whatnot. These things can be in conflict. And so I don't think it's necessarily wrong that feminists are focused on local issues. I think the real problem is they're not thinking through whether their focus is good in general. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about, there's a, it's Bessie Stevenson and Justin Wolfers have written about the paradox of declining female happiness. So by every measure, things should be much better for women since the 60s in terms of sexual liberty, economic liberty, you know, just everything that you have been told by feminists should be the measure of whether you're, whether the things you're fighting for have been accomplished, they've kind of won almost all the battles. At the same time, women themselves report declining happiness over this time. They used to be far happier than men, now they're actually less happy than men, and I think men's happiness has increased. Um, at the very least, women are now lower than men when they used to be significantly higher in terms of their happiness. At some point you might ask, gee, we've been having all of these successes for feminism, and the net result is women are less happy. Maybe we should reevaluate whether what we were thinking was good for women is actually good for women. And particularly when you look at these you know, other objective measures like out of wedlock births and how difficult that is for women to raise children on their own and how there's no, you know, we encourage women to do this. We say it's fine to do this, but then there's not really a lot of support or help for them. And so all these things that we were throwing off, the, the feminists were throwing off all these institutions what if they were really the means by which women were protected and defended and were able to achieve fullness of life and happiness? So I would still prefer a local focus, but just maybe a reevaluation of whether that focus is right in the first place. I want to ask a question. Uh, there's so many young women here and uh, a number of our interns also. Can you just uh, share how you got your start? Um, how did you get into journalism? What what advice would you give to them? How to be a good writer, that was going yeah. to be my question. Okay, so I'm now getting at that age where I sort of don't remember <laughs> what happened. <laughs> and I had a very weird path to everything. I thought I wanted to be an academic and I went to school with that in mind and then realized that was not quite in the cards. And I had been so certain from childhood that I wanted to be an economist that when I didn't, when I realized that wasn't going to be what I was doing, I didn't really know what to do. I looked around and I saw all these 
friends of mine who were reporters, and they didn't make any money, which was a concern of mine. <laughs> like, they were always so poor, it was ridiculous and scrounging, you know, for can I sleep on your couch kind of stuff. But, um, but they were really happy with what they did. And I thought, well, maybe I should give this a try. And then I, um, I thought about it for a little while, and then I got the gift of getting fired from a job, which did not feel like a gift when it happened, and I was very scared. But then all of a sudden, the lack of money wasn't quite the issue that it had been when I was gainfully employed, and I decided to make a go for it. The bad news being it was right after September 11th when, gosh, I don't even want to know how old you guys were at that. I just hope you were born by that point, but I don't want to ask anything else. But um, so the the immediate after effect of September 11th was a, was a huge economic hit that hit newspapers in particular. It was kind of colliding at the same time as the ad model was changing. So like competing with really good journalists for jobs at newspapers, but my one advantage was that I worked for cheap. So I was able to just kind of get in there and write, write, write for many, many years, mostly about stuff I didn't really care that much about, and learned the craft of writing that way. I have more of a math background, and that was very helpful too, in that I was writing a lot about budgets or financial documents, and having that background turned out to be very helpful for me. But I didn't know anything about writing, so I really had to learn by just doing it day in and day out, sometimes three or four stories a day, really helps you. I also had to learn how to talk to people on the phone and ask them questions, and I'm not very... Um, it's not it's not comfortable for me, so that was good to just also have to learn how to do that. And then after doing sort of straight news reporting for a long time, I started branching out into things I cared about, which actually was religion. And that was really fun that I got to write about religion for the Wall Street Journal and other publications for a long period of time. I noticed, and this is what I would just challenge you all and encourage you on, that when I read about religion in newspapers, I noticed they were just getting basic facts wrong. This week alone, by the way, I've seen like three publications mess up the basic issue of whether Christians believe Jesus uh, rose from the dead, which I feel like is not <laughs> specialized knowledge about the, you know, this large faith. Um, I mean, we're talking, we've, we've seen it happen in the New York Times. I saw it this week in the Washington Times. National Geographic. I mean, lots of publications where there's just religious ignorance. So I was learning that I, if I... Just using the knowledge I had, I could write, and people were appreciative of me writing on religion because I understood the issues better than other people. But it also shows why it's important if you do have values and beliefs and knowledge that are different from what you see promulgated in the public square, you kind of do have a responsibility to get out there and say those things, and it helps other people when you use your voice and when you write the truth. This is where, you know, there's not an excess of smart, truthful writing out there, and so... Um, I would just encourage you all to think about it. If you have any writing skills at all, or if you have any interest at all, this is really important. It's a battle for, the, for civilization, basically, and uh, everything helps. I don't know if that answered it, but... Just keep writing, and you're going to get better and better and better. Yeah, isn't that really, like, really great advice, too? Like, <laughs> you just have to work really, really hard for about 10 years, and then it's all going to be really easy after that. But in, I'm joking, but my best friend is a writer. And when I told her I thought maybe I wanted to write, she told me that. And I thought, ugh, I don't have time and energy to do that much writing. But I did things like just started a blog and just kind of wrote like a paragraph here or there. Um, and then after a few years, you re you're like, wow, I actually did learn how to do this. And it's not, you know, if you just kind of do it day by day and whatnot, and just write what you know, and you have very interesting ideas already. Just like one of the things we love at our publication is just 
a different take on pop culture. So you're watching a TV show. If you go to Vice or you know, some of these other publications and they're talking about what they saw in this pop culture thing, they usually use the hook of the show as a way to further promote bad values. And if you have a different perspective on a TV show or a movie or a new album that's out or something like this, it's a great thing. You, you're writing on something that people are generally interested in and you also have a chance to put forth some meat and some, some significance to, to the discussion. And you know you already have that in your head, probably. I'm just sort of assuming. But you probably already have that in your head. So just get it out there and serve other people by doing that. Good like door prizes. And nice. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> this, you, me first. Our limited edition Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute mug with her famous saying, no good deed goes unpunished. I think you have one of these, but now you have one for your husband. I do, and I have no I have no personal mugs other than like if I get one, so there this you is go. great. So. And a tote bag to put your other gifts in. Nice. And Thank um, you very much. from Heritage, because you are a writer, we've got a, a Heritage monogram. A pad folio. Um, how many of you have listened to the Federalist uh, Radio Hour podcast? I would encourage you all to sign up for the podcast. And Madeline, I think, is the one who selects the music. Well, it's funny you should say that. Yes, she does. Except that if you host it, you get to fight with her about what music. Well, they is put they on, also so. you can follow on Spotify. <laughs> the um, music list, which is a great music list. Um, but there's a sign-off line that you have at the end, be lovers of freedom. Be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Which is, I think, a wonderful note um, to end on today. So thank you all for joining us. And uh, we'll have lunch outside in the lobby. And uh, we can continue the conversation there. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.